Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. revolt was the most astonishing popular uprising of the Middle Ages. It was a response to a century that was hell to live in. On top of plague, famine and war, the government had imposed a poll tax. In 1381, the people snapped. Within two weeks, a mixture of farmers, tradesmen and landless labourers were on the brink of overthrowing the social order. The rebels had marched on London to present their demands for justice to the boy King Richard II in person. Fifteen days in, and two vast armies from Kent and Essex were camped north and south of the Thames. We've discovered that the rebels who camped here on Blackheath under their leader Wat Tyler weren't just yokels. The so-called peasants were highly organised and politically sophisticated. They wanted change and they wanted freedom. Right here on that Thursday morning, on the day of the Catholic feast of Corpus Christi, the rebel clergyman John Ball celebrated mass and preached one of the most famous sermons ever, a political manifesto as radical as Marxism 500 years later. He asked, when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? In other words, the very first people that God created weren't gentry, they were ordinary working folk who dug their fields and made their own clothes. The message was clear. The whole system of nobility wasn't ordained by God. In fact, it ran directly counter to God's will. So, with God on their side, the rebels set off to put that right. King Richard and his court had no idea how radical the demands of the rebels were, so they'd got no plan to deal with them. 
In fact, they had little plan at all. They agreed to an arm's length meeting. This is an illustration of what seems to have been an extraordinarily impractical arrangement. The king and his advisers got on barges at the Tower of London and sailed to Rotherhithe to where the peasants were massing. The idea was that they'd have a safe stretch of water between them and the mob. And according to the chronicles, the king told them to go home. Although I can't actually imagine that the king said it himself. Presumably one of the aristocrats said, what should we do, my lord? And the king said, tell them to go home. And the aristocrat went, the king says, go home. But that does seem to be a pretty pathetic tactic. I can't hear you. Oh, sorry. This isn't working very well, is it? Hang on. Can you turn the engine off, mate? I said it seems a pretty pathetic tactic to just simply have said, go away. It certainly was, but there's chaos in the king's advisers at this time. His ministers do not really know how to deal with this. They're not quite sure how um, large the revolt has become, and their earlier efforts to send out messengers to try and intercept the rebels and tell them to go home simply hasn't worked. So what did the king do? Well, the king and a small fitter of barges basically stop in the river and wait for the rebels to shout what they want. And what did they want? The rebels ask, can we meet the king in person? And does he agree? Well, we're not sure exactly what the king wants, but it seems that his ministers say to him, definitely do not get off the boat, it's not safe. So they try and keep him on the boat. So what did the peasants actually demand? Well, what they ask for now is a list of important men to be handed over for them to deal with themselves. Like who? Well, it reads like a list of the who's who of late medieval England. It's the top men in the king's government, including the chancellor, the treasurer, the lord keeper of the privy seal, and some senior judges who've been involved in prosecuting the men who are refusing to pay the poll tax. So presumably some of them would have been in this little flotilla of barges. Well, it seems more than likely that a lot of these men are actually around Richard at the time. So it puts both them and the young king in a difficult situation. So presumably he didn't hand them over? No, he doesn't. Probably because he's been stalling for time. And then what does he do? Well, the flotilla simply goes back to the tower. Well, presumably the peasants weren't very happy about that. The peasants are absolutely outraged by this, and they simply decide, well, if the king is not going to come to us, then we are going to come to him and force him to listen to us. And they did. They marched into Southwark and broke open the king's bench jail, freeing the prisoners. Army deserter Thomas Wooten used the opportunity to pinch six silver spoons belonging to the jailer's wife. But the revolt had popular support across all classes. The rebels were joined by respectable local citizens, like John Mocking. He'd made a fortune importing wine for wealthy Londoners. He was a leading member of the congregation at St Olaf's, where his brother was rector. London's last line of defence was the Thames. In 1381, there was only one place to cross, London Bridge.
By putting pillars of the community like John Mocking at the front of the crowd, the rebels persuaded the aldermen defending London Bridge to lower the drawbridge. The peasant army swept across the bridge and into the defenceless city. Presumably going to follow round and get over that way. I've only got a token force, but we're following the exact route the rebels took. As they flooded into the city and out onto Fleet Street, it must have been like an invading army. Many Londoners supported the revolt and turned out to welcome the peasants. But there was fear and panic too, as the peasants started to hunt down their targets. They didn't just hate the priests and the nobility, they loathed the lawyers, especially the corrupt ones who rigged trials in favour of the rich. So when they arrived at the courts of justice, they burst in, dragged out the lawyers and cut their heads off. These were tough countrymen with their own idea of rough justice. There was no mercy for the people they believed had betrayed the king. And the chief traitor in their eyes was John of Gaunt, the king's uncle. The rebels believed he was the evil power behind the throne, pushing the young king into making all the wrong decisions and getting rich himself. Lucky for him, Gaunt was on the Scottish border when the peasants struck, or he would have been a dead man. Instead, the peasants vented their anger on his palace at the Savoy. Where the Savoy Hotel stands now was one of the grandest palaces in the kingdom. It was a storehouse for Gaunt's wealth, a treasure trove of jewels, exquisite furniture, robes, finery and cash, which the people believed had been siphoned off from the poll tax. Around four o'clock on the afternoon of the 13th of June, it became the chief target for all the pent-up hatred and passion of the Peasants' Revolt. They came bursting in here, raced into the palace, smashing everything up, tearing up clothes. They got arrows which they set fire to and then they fired the arrows into the clothes. It would have been absolute chaos in here. Hiya. Can we uh, ride our horses into your nice hotel? Uh, I've, got, um, I've got 300 peasants outside. Can I bring those in too? No? Where can we park the horses? Um, in the stables. In the stables, round the back. <laughs> Nothing much changes in a few hundred years, does it? Can I come in on my own? I'm booked in for a cup of tea. I'm going to get a cup of tea. 600 years ago, the gatekeepers at the Savoy were on the peasant's side. They let them right in, thousands of them. Peasants, gentry, countrymen and Londoners. We've got the names of over 500. John Mocking, the wine merchant, was there. Along with the Manningtree men, John Sumner and Robert Pierce.
there were also lowlifes like Richard Scott, a street con man who'd scratched a living cheating gullible visitors to the capital with loaded dice. John and Joan Ferrer from Rochester liberated a chest containing a thousand pounds, rode it across the river to Southwark and shared it out with their mates. They'd taken a risk though. The rebels were prepared to use extreme violence in their fight against corruption, but looting was banned on pain of death. For them, raiding the Savoy wasn't about gain, it was a symbolic act of destruction. The rebels burnt Gaunt's clothes, smashed his furniture, cut up his silver and gold plates and threw them in the Thames. It was a very nice tea actually, they do do a good tea at the Savoy. I think one of the things that our experiments have shown is how different the world was in the Middle Ages. I've nicked you a bit of cake by the way. Fantastic. From how it is today. For instance, the kind of violence that they meted out in the Peasants' Revolt is unlike anything that there's been in London in my lifetime. They completely destroyed this place and left it in ruins for decades just to show people what a terrifying thing it was when the Peasants' Revolted. Caroline, the old Savoy doesn't look nearly as grand round the back as it does from the front, does it? No, but I think perhaps in 1381, this side would have been quite as impressive as the front. So you've got loads of rioters here, not just people from Kent and Essex, but local people too. Would they have just left their work and mucked in? I'm quite sure the Londoners participated in the attack on the Savoy. They were obviously uh, opportunists, but they had their own reasons for disliking John of Gaunt. They disliked him because he had tried to extend the jurisdiction of the Crown and threaten the privileges of the City of London. Do you think this would have had any impact nationally, or was it just a London event? No, it had a massive impact nationally, and in Europe. I mean, it, it was well known all over Europe that this had happened. I think there's some very close parallels with 9-11 and the kind of impact that that had. But only two or three hundred people died here compared with thousands in 9-11. But think of the population of London. The population of London was perhaps 40,000. So two or three hundred people is about, you know, uh, one in 800. Whereas if you think of uh, New York, population of 8 million, 2,000 die, that's perhaps one in 16,000. Massively greater death toll in the Peasants' Revolt in relation to the size of the population. People whom you perhaps disregarded and thought of as lower than vermin, uh, of no education, like animals, suddenly you find they're capable of organizing something on a massive scale and coordinating it and bringing about a successful breakdown of law and order. And I think after 9-11, everybody was shocked that people have been able to achieve such a coordinated impact. And it was exactly the same in 1381. The chroniclers are horrified that rustic-y, rustic people are able to bring the king's government and the government of London to its knees. As the rebels took control of London, Richard II became a virtual prisoner in the tower. Looking out across the city, he would have seen columns of smoke rising from the Savoy Palace.
So what would the atmosphere have been like here in London during the revolt? Well, if you were a lawyer or a priest, you'd probably have been hiding in a cupboard or under the floorboards. But for the ordinary people, it would have been very different. You know what it used to be like on a hot night during the Notting Hill Carnival in the old days? Everyone had had a good time and there was loads of rubbish all over the place and there were people lying face down in the street. But behind all the singing and laughter, there was an undercurrent of something much more violent and sinister. Some started to use the revolt as a cover to settle private grudges. It wasn't just corrupt officials that were hauled out for summary executions. One of the nastiest aspects of the revolt was a series of what nowadays we'd call racist attacks. The targets were the Belgians, or the Flemish as they were then known. What had they done wrong? Well, they were foreign and they made a lot of money and that was enough. The rioters would seek them out, they'd grab someone, throw them against a wall and get them to say the words bread and cheese. If they used the Flemish phrase, brot und kasse, that was proof. They were dragged away and their heads were cut off. After the first chaotic day in London that had seen the destruction of the Savoy Palace and summary executions on the street, the peasants had turned the world upside down. Hold up inside the tower, the king was presiding over a desperate debate about strategy. Some wanted to launch an immediate attack on the rebels. But Richard sided with those who counselled delaying tactics. He sent a message to the rebels. To determine the fate of his kingdom, the next day he would meet them face to face. England was in disarray. In just over two weeks, the Peasants' Revolt had shattered the rigid rules of medieval society. Peasants from Kent and Essex had overrun London and forced the King to agree to a face-to-face -face meeting. The Essex rebels camped here, a mile outside of London on the road to Essex, at a place appropriately called Mile End. There's the station over there. It was here on the 14th, only a fortnight after the revolt had started, that the King of England himself rode out to meet the rebels. It was confusing, scary. The King himself was under threat. He was Daniel in the lion's den. But was the royal party right to be so scared? Uh, they were. The, the threat was very serious indeed. Half of the country was involved with the rising now. They were in very serious trouble and they knew it. So when they got here, what happened? Well, they approached the crowds. You have to bear in mind there's a huge uh, crowd. You have the Essex army here, about 30,000 peasants in the Essex army. The London population had turned out to join this enormous gathering. This is an extraordinary moment in English history. And what did they want? Um, they drawn up four demands. Um, one was for an end to bonded labour, which meant that the peasant would be able to work for any lord they, they chose to work for. So they wouldn't be serfs anymore? Exactly. That would be the end of serfdom. Yeah. Absolutely right. 
Uh, the second related demand was that uh, any peasant will be able to sell their produce as they chose on the London market or wherever. In other words, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be forced to hand over tribute to the local lord. So these are guys arguing for a free market, basically? Well, they certainly wanted the freedom to trade as, as they chose, yeah. that's right. And the third? The third demand uh, was for land rent to be reduced to four pence an acre. Now, this is interesting because land rent varied enormously across England. Some peasants had to pay up to two shillings uh, a year per acre for their land. So to reduce that to four pence an acre across the country suggested they had a national plan, a national vision for how things could be different. This was a demand based on economic theory. Maybe theory is too strong a word, but they certainly had economic ideas. This wasn't some crazy, chaotic outburst, some irrational outburst. They had an economic plan for how England could be organised differently. So that's three demands. The fourth demand was that nobody should be punished for having taken part in the rising. So the king's confronted by all these radical demands. What does he do? He concedes. He knows he has no choice. They're really in a corner at this point. How did the rebels know he'd keep his word? They got it in writing. Uh, it's the same today, isn't it? You don't just take someone's word for it, you get it in writing. They demanded charters of freedom for every single village represented at Mile End that day. This was unbelievable. The king had granted every one of the peasants' demands. At a stroke, he'd agreed to dismantle the entire structure of medieval society, ending serfdom and producing signed documents to make it official. And this is the evidence, a contemporary copy of one of the charters recorded by a chronicler. In trying to hang on to his kingdom, Richard was willing to sacrifice almost anything and anyone. The rebels thought they'd got what they wanted, but the hated government officials were still in power. So they demanded the heads of Sudbury and Hales, who'd been left behind at the tower. And when the king murmured something about giving them justice, a group of them broke away, Tower of London police, and raced back to London with the news that the king was throwing the traitors to the wolves. London had never once fallen in its entire history, but this time it was different. When the rebels arrived, they found the drawbridge was down and the doors were open. The king, or someone close to him, was clearly on their side. On one level, they were like kids let loose in a sweet shop. They rampaged through the corridors, they burst into the Queen's bedroom, they ransacked her drawers, they bounced up and down on her bed. But that was just the fun part. They knew what they were really after, the blood of the poll tax traitors. Sudbury and Hales and co must have known what was coming to them as this great crowd of men and women swept through the tower. Sudbury tried to escape, but he was spotted by a woman as he scrambled into a boat and was dragged away and thrown into this chapel. The country's number one bishop and tax collector had got nothing left to do but pray. It took eight blows to sever Sudbury's head from his body. 
Robert Hales was also executed. Their heads were paraded on spikes in celebration of the peasants' total victory. After just two weeks of rebellion, the peasants had overturned medieval society. They'd won their freedom and seen their hated enemies executed in cold blood. They trusted Richard to deliver. So even while the newly won charters of freedom were being signed, satisfied peasants started drifting back to their homes. If Richard's concessions had been intended to divide and rule, the tactic had worked. Down this little alleyway is the site of Richard II's bolt hole, a fortified house in the city walls known as the Wardrobe. It was here on the night of the 14th that a special team of 30 monks was drafted in to copy out the royal charters of freedom. But the amazing gains made at Mile End weren't enough for a hardcore of Kentish rebels led by Watt Tyler. Their ambition was nothing less than the overthrow of the entire system. And the next day, a final showdown between the roofer from Maidstone and the boy King would shape England's destiny for centuries. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, there was this extraordinary feeling of excitement and euphoria that ordinary people had overthrown a superpower. Something similar must have been in the air in June 1381. In just two weeks, the peasantry had thrown this rigid and oppressive regime into total disarray. The king had given in to all their demands. Not only that, but they'd got bits of paper to prove it. Royal charters actually signed by the king, which promised to do away with serfdom. Not only that, but he'd sacrificed the heads of some of the most hated and highest officials in the land just to appease their anger. The status quo had been stretched to breaking point. When news reached the authorities that Watt Tyler wanted further concessions, they must have realized a showdown with the hardcore rebels was inevitable. they had to come up with a strategy. Their plan to fight back all rested on the shoulders of a 14-year-old boy. Richard II knew he was going to need all the help he could get. At 3 o'clock on the 15th, the deeply religious young king came here to Westminster Abbey to pray at the shrine of his venerable ancestor, the saint and king Edward the Confessor. He'd only have had the haziest idea of how badly his kingdom was falling apart. But what he did know was that for him, the next six hours were make or break. He had one trump card to play. The peasants absolutely trusted Richard to do the right thing by them. They were wrong. The crunch meeting was make or break for both sides. It was arranged for later that day here on neutral ground outside the city walls. In 1381, it was a field by the monastery and hospital of St. Bartholomew, Smithfield. 
Smithfield Meat Market grew up here outside the city walls. No one wanted the dirty business of butchery in the heart of the city. And Smithfield was also a place for dirty political deeds. A few years before, William Wallace, Braveheart, had been hung, drawn and quartered here. On the 15th, death was once again in the air. The peasants started to assemble late in the afternoon. They knew that the political future of England was theirs to grasp. The demonstrations I've been on in London have all tended to start pretty much the same. First of all, little rather desultory groups of people arrived looking round, wondering what's going to happen, and then more and more people fill the square, until suddenly there's a sense that you actually occupy the place in a way that you never have before. Then someone arrives with all the banners and posters, and all of a sudden you've got an identity but presumably they didn't have banners and posters in the 14th century. Well, I think there's evidence that's suggesting they did. I in what way? Modern academics are suggesting that they found evidence they're carrying the St George's flag and that Richard, to indicate his assent to this, had given some of them permission to carry the royal standard. The peasants may have had their 14th century equivalent of placards, but that's as far as the parallel with the demonstration goes. They were a far more formidable fighting force than a bunch of modern protesters. They had to be. Richard's men had state-of-the-art equipment. This guy would have been a bit more threatening than a yeah. copper in a riot shield, wouldn't he? Absolutely. So the status quo guard, and we're 35 years into the Hundred Years' War. These are men with real military experience. So man clad in steel is an intimidating thing. So what kind of weapons would the King's forces have had? The predominant weapon of the period, of course, is the sword. Yes. So they'd have been armed with a sword. The sword can be used, obviously, to cut. You can thrust with, which you can cut with. You can use the other end as a hammer. You can use the cross guard as a hook. It's a very versatile fighting tool. They also would have had daggers. Daggers would be on both sides. Daggers are wonderfully versatile weapon. Again, great somewhere like London, good for street fighting, getting close, stab people in the shoulder, which has a particular resonance in this circumstance. Yeah, but with this armour and the sword, surely the, the rebels would have easily been hammered. Well, I think the important thing to remember with this rebellion is this was an armed rebellion, and in London there were two opposing forces heavily armed. There was no inequality here. So what did the rebels have? Well, they had a variety of things. Obviously, they weren't all peasants in, in the way that people today think they were. But even if some of them were, the poorest man in the land can afford a stick. You can get a stick for free in the woods. Is that much good, though? Yeah. I could beat a man in armour with a stick. Never. First of all, I've got reach. His main job, he's going to get near me. I could have hit him 20 times then. If he's clever enough to get hold of my stick and comes in, I can use the stick to block with. Now I've got a wonderful lever. He's off balance and I can hit him and hit him again. So a stick is very useful. But even if you're not a skilled person with a stick, even if you're somebody who hasn't done much but just has anger in your heart, you could do a lot of damage with that. Oh, I think that's for me. That one's for me. Yeah, I like that. What about this? This is quite Simple, fierce, isn't it? Agricultural tool. 
It's called a hedging bill. It's for trimming the hedges, laying the hedges, getting them neat. It's a weapon in its own right. But pop down to your local blacksmith and get him to spend 10 minutes in the forge and put a spike on it. And you can see, look, it's the same tool. This is like the yeoman of the guard used nowadays. Exactly. This, with a spike on, becomes the English military bill. And it was a classic weapon of the Hundred Years' War. English billmen were famed the world over. And it's got reach. You can get to people on horseback. It's got power. Even simpler, you just need to take a scythe blade. So a scythe for reaping the corn, down to the blacksmith and put it on a long pole. Now you've got a devastating, awesome cutting weapon, so you've got the reach to scythe up at that knight sitting six foot high over his horse, or chop the horse. What's this thing? Isn't... Well, I have to say, this does look a bit Joey. <laughs> Joey? <laughs> it's a flail. It's... You've seen Bruce Lee movies? Yeah. And they have the nunchuckers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two yeah. little short sticks. Yeah. And they do all that stuff and do all the things yeah, like yeah. that. That's because they use it to thresh the rice. What they did in Europe was they used this with a longer pole to thresh the wheat. So again, we're a few weeks away from harvest. The wheat is still green. But once that's golden brown, you need to thresh it. You need to separate the wheat from the chaff. So it's simply a tool that they do that on the floor to separate the wheat from the chaff. Stick some nails in it and you've got a military weapon. I <laughs> me, I wouldn't like to be on the receiving end of that. No, and even if you're wearing armour, then there's going to be a level where you get some blunt trauma. Oh, let's have a go at that. And adding to this homegrown arsenal was the deadly firepower of the people's weapon, the longbow. 900 bows had been stolen from the tower the day before, and every peasant was trained to use one. So we've got two opposing armies bristling with weapons, nose to nose in the middle of London. Pretty scary thought. Well, it's not quite in the middle of London, Tony. It's right on the outer edge of the city. Uh, even now, today, it's right by the Ring of Steel, marks the sensitive inner core of the city. Well, it's more like a ring of solid plastic now, but I know what yeah, you mean. Yeah, but in 1381, it would have also been still very dramatic from the events of the revolt. Behind us, you'd have been able to see the ruins of one of the priories that the rebels had attacked still burning away. So why here? I think because it was a controlled space where you could easily assemble um, the two sides in order to try and conduct some sort of negotiation. How many rebels do you think there might have been? Well, it's always difficult to say with numbers in 1381. We know that some rebels had left the city after the concessions at Mile End, um, but um, what we were left with uh, at Smithfield um, was a recalcitrant, hardcore, almost like headbanging, headbangers rebels. Um, I guess there probably would be about three or 400 uh, of them left by that stage. And King's men? Well, the King is likely to have had about 200 men with him, including bodyguards and his personal servants and his attendants. So they're, they're really getting prepared for this encounter and probably quite concerned at this stage. When you say prepared, what do you reckon their plan was? Well, it's very difficult to work out, but it seems that there's some suggestion that the King's men might have expected some kind of trouble and may well have been planning for an armed encounter. Otherwise, they're probably concerned to see what Tyler is actually going to ask for at this second meeting. So do you reckon the whole thing was actually a stitcher? Well, many people have said that. Right, really, since the few days after the revolt, people have argued that this occasion may well have been set up as a sting against Tyler and the other rebels. And what's your thought? 
it's so difficult to tell. But one problem with this theory is that the king is quite exposed throughout the encounter, and his life really is in danger at several points. It's a real high-risk strategy. Um, if, the, if it was a plot, if it was a conspiracy, uh, they're taking an enormous risk, especially as they must have been aware that they were dealing with the toughest and the most recalcitrant of the rebels by that stage. Could have stage. been cock-up just as much as conspiracy. Uh, it may well have been that, yeah. This illustration is from Jean Frosart's History of the Revolt, written just seven years after the event. It's the climactic showdown between Richard II and Wat Tyler. There's a complete hush. It's really tense. The archers have got their fingers on the bows, but Wat ambles up to the king in a familiar, relaxed way, shakes him by the hand, hello, brother, he says, and then he tells him what they want. Freedom? Abolition of the aristocracy, apart from the king. Abolition of the senior clergy, except for John Ball, who was going to be made the next Archbishop of Canterbury. Local courts, local police forces to be run by the people themselves. And all the money that previously belonged to the bishops and the lords would now be divided up among the common people. And all the while, what was telling this to the king was playing with his knife, flicking it from hand to hand. Although, whether it was because he was tense or because he was really relaxed, no one knows. When he'd finished, the king didn't argue or try to negotiate. He just said yes, with the tiny caveat that the people should continue to respect the monarchy. What was thirsty? He called for some water. He took a drink, swirled it round in his mouth, and spat it out. Then he ordered some beer. He drank that and wiped his mouth on the back of his hand. And at that moment, when they seemed to be on the verge of the greatest social revolution the world had ever known, things started to unravel. Oi! shouted a squire near the king. I know you. You're the biggest thief in Kent. That narked what? He said, come here and say that. And he ordered his men to lop off the squire's head. But no one moved. Instead, the mayor of London rode forward, either to reason with Tyler or to provoke him. The chronicles differ as to precisely what happened next, but what is clear is that some kind of scuffle broke out. Watts tried to stab the mayor, but he was wearing armour, and stabbed Watt in the back of the neck instead. Then someone else whacked him. Watt tried to ride back to the safety of his men, but before he'd got 80 paces, he fell off his horse. The peasant bowmen tensed, ready to rain down arrows on the king and his men. Behind them were others with flails and billhooks. There was enough firepower to wipe out the entire bodyguard. Even the king himself was in danger. But on the brink of disaster, Richard himself dealt the fatal blow to the peasants' revolt. He was only 14, but he was brave. He rode straight towards the sea of rebel bowmen. You shall have no other king but me, he shouted. Follow me to Clerkenwell. It seems that he was being spontaneous. If so, it was very brave, but it was also a brilliantly ambiguous phrase. Did he mean that he was taking the rebels' cause, or was he telling them that from now on they had to submit to the authorities? The peasants lowered their bows, breathed a sigh of relief, and followed their king to the fields of Clerkenwell. All through the revolt, they'd appealed to him for justice. Now their fate and that of the wounded Wat Tyler lay in his hands. 
Surely the divinely appointed monarch would see them right. What Tyler's outrageous demands for a new social order had led to a bloody confrontation at Smithfield. Now, the peasants' revolt hung in the balance. Richard II led the remaining rebels off to the fields of Clerkenwell on the promise that he would be their new leader. Meanwhile, Tyler himself was bleeding to death here in the Abbey of St Bartholomew's. He'd been dragged here after he'd been stabbed. The monks were trying to keep him alive when the king's men burst in and dragged him outside for a show execution. They severed his head from his body and with that blow, the revolution ended. They stuck the head on a spike and took it off to the fields of Clerkenwell where the king had led the rebels. But at the same time, all the available loyal forces in every ward in London converged on Clerkenwell and surrounded them. When they saw Tyler's head and the show of force, the rebels threw away their weapons and dropped to their knees in the corn, begging forgiveness. The rebels had come within an inch of transforming the country. But with Wat Tyler's death, the momentum of the revolt was broken. And as the shock waves of failure spread, the rebellion slowly died. Richard had never been on the peasants' side. He organized a ferocious backlash. The people of England were about to find out the price of revolution in the 14th century. The establishment wanted to make sure nothing like this ever happened again. After the disaster at Smithfield, thousands of rebels went home, hopeful that they wouldn't be identified. But a small corps clung on as outlaws. In the Middle Ages, if you were an outlaw, then like Robin Hood, you tended to hide in the forests. And 500 of them were cornered in the woods of Billericay and massacred. Then the king appointed commissioners to seek out and destroy the leaders of the rebels who'd returned home. They were to be punished, said the king, either according to the laws of the Kingdom of England or else by other means and methods, by beheading, by mutilation of limbs, as seems to you both expeditious and sensible. The Billericay deaths were just part of a campaign of terror that shocked even the chroniclers of the time. Scholars estimate that hundreds died before official prosecutions began. And what about the individuals whose stories we've been following? What Tyler was probably already dead from his wounds when he was beheaded. John Ball suffered the full torture of being hung, drawn and quartered some months later. He died still proclaiming his simple faith. Many wealthier rebels, like John Mocking, the wine dealer, Thomas Raven, the MP, and the men from Manningtree, were pardoned and lived out lives of respectability. 
Unlike Thomas Wooden, the army deserter, he denied his part in the revolt and staked his life on a trial by combat. He lost. Then there was Richard Scott. He ended up in the pillory the next year, not for taking part in the revolt, but for cheating two Scotsmen at dice. And the man who started it all, Thomas the Baker, was hunted down. On the 4th of July, just a month after he sparked the revolt, he too was hung, drawn and quartered. Over the next five months, the last embers of the peasants' revolt were extinguished. But the authorities not only wanted the peasants defeated, they wanted the rebellion forgotten. Official spin started the process of masking the true nature and achievements of the summer of 1381. This is Sudbury in Suffolk, which seems to me to be the perfect place to end this journey because despite the official pardons, the period after the revolt saw a vicious bloodbath of unofficial executions without trial. They weren't recorded, of course, so we've no idea how many. But in the 1930s, a whole cache of headless skeletons was found just over there and local people believe they're the bodies of the last remnants of the rebels. They were reburied, of course, covered up, just like the true story of the Peasants' Revolt. This church was once the heart of an institution founded by Simon Sudbury, the hated archbishop who'd enforced the poll tax. His head had been hacked off by the rebels at the Tower of London. We know that the summer of 1381 was gloriously hot, but if you want proof of the fact, it's here. Sudbury's supporters rescued his head from the spike on which the rebels had stuck it and brought it back to this church. It's in this little cupboard here. There you go. Can you see that the air was so hot and dry that it actually mummified all the skin on the lower half of his skull. That is the head of the man who collected the very first poll tax. It was this that was paraded round on a spike on the 14th of June 1381 and there you can see the sword marks where his head was hacked from his neck. It's quite a bizarre historical relic and it's just about the only tangible thing I can show you from the Peasants' Revolt. There's no shrine for any one of the men and women who came so close to changing their world. So was the Peasants' Revolt just a blip on history's radar? Did so many people die for nothing? Or is there a more lasting legacy from 1381? global impact of the Peasants' Revolt showed that ordinary people could get together and think about politics on a broader level beyond their own lives. Since 1381, no British government, and nowadays that means the House of Commons, the House of Lords, but then it meant the King and his Council and Parliament, 
can disregard the wider political community. And for this to have happened at the end of the 14th century was truly remarkable. It set the pattern for later centuries of revolt. We find more of them in the 15th century, in the 16th century and beyond. There's a real sense, I think, that in 1381 the peasantry has arrived as a factor in politics. People today are protesting against uh, exploitation and warfare. So what the peasants did in 1381 does echo down the centuries to us and it does have a resonance in terms of our own experience today. My search for the truth about the peasants' revolt has given me an entirely new perspective on the Middle Ages. All right, they were tough and horrible for the majority of ordinary people who were trapped inside this tyrannical and oppressive regime. But we're not talking about brain-dead yokels like something out of a Monty Python film. These are smart, politically sophisticated people separated from us by just a sliver of historical time. And what I find really moving is the way that they were able to express really complex desires and demands about things like religion and tax and local government and freedom and weld them all together into a really well-crafted manifesto. Not only that, but many of them were prepared to risk prosecution and death even though they weren't directly involved. They lost, of course. But what they did sent a clarion call down the ages that's never been completely forgotten. That in the end, government can only work if the people are prepared to be governed.